This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sarah Crewe, or What Happened at Miss Minchin's, by Frances Hodgson Burnett, Part 1. In the first place, Miss Minchin lived in London. Her home was a large, dull, tall one, in a large, dull square, where all the houses were alike, and all the sparrows were alike, and where all the door-knockers made the same heavy sound, and on still days, and nearly all the days were still, seemed to resound through the entire row in which the knock was knocked. On Miss Minchin's door there was a brass plate. On the brass plate there was inscribed in black letters, Miss Minchin's Select Seminary for Young Ladies. Little Sarah Crewe never went in or out of the house without reading that door plate and reflecting upon it. By the time she was twelve, she had decided that all her troubles arose because, in the first place, she was not select, and in the second place, she was not a young lady. When she was eight years old, she had been brought to Miss Minchin as a pupil and left with her. Her papa had brought her all the way from India. Her mamma had died when she was a baby, and her papa had kept her with him as long as he could. And then, finding the hot climate was making her very delicate, he had brought her to England and left her with Miss Minchin to be part of the select seminary for young ladies. Sarah, who had always been a sharp little child, who remembered things, recollected hearing him say that he had not a relative in the world whom he knew of, and so he was obliged to place her at a boarding school, and he had heard Miss Minchin's establishment spoken of very highly. The same day he took Sarah out and bought her a great many beautiful clothes, clothes so grand and rich that only a very young and inexperienced man would have bought them for a mite of a child who was going to be brought up in a boarding school. But the fact that he was a rash, innocent young man, and very sad at the thought of parting with his little girl, who was all he had left to remind him of her beautiful mother, whom he had dearly loved. And he wished her to have everything the most fortunate little girl could have. And so... When the polite saleswoman in the shop said, Here is our very latest thing in hats. The plumes are exactly the same as those we sold to Lady Diane Sinclair yesterday. He immediately bought what was offered to him and paid whatever was asked. The consequence was that Sarah had a most extraordinary wardrobe. Her dresses were silk and velvet and India cashmere. Her hats and bonnets were covered with bows and plumes. Her small undergarments were adorned with real lace, and she returned in the cab to Miss Minchin's with a doll almost as large as herself, dressed quite as grandly as herself, too. Then her papa gave Miss Minchin some money and went away, and for several days Sarah would neither touch the doll nor her breakfast nor her dinner, nor her tea, and would do nothing but crouch in a small corner by the window and cry. 
She cried so much, indeed, that she made herself ill. She was a queer little child with old-fashioned ways and strong feelings, and she had adored her papa, and could not be made to think that India and an interesting bungalow were not better for her than London and Miss Minchin's select seminary. The instant she had entered the house, she had begun promptly to hate Miss Minchin, and to think little of Miss Amelia Minchin, who was smooth and dumpy and lisped, and was evidently afraid of her older sister. Miss Minchin was tall, and had large, cold, fishy eyes, and large, cold hands, which seemed fishy, too, because they were damp and made chills run down Sarah's back when they touched her, as Miss Minchin pushed her hair off her forehead and said, "'A most beautiful and promising little girl, Captain Crewe. "'She will be a favorite pupil, quite a favorite pupil, I see.' "'For the first year she was a favorite pupil. "'At least she was indulged a great deal more than was good for her. "'And when the select seminary went walking, two by two, "'she was always decked out in her grandest clothes, "'and led by the hand at the head of the genteel procession by Miss Minchin herself. And when the parents of any of the pupils came, she was always dressed and called into the parlor with her doll, and she used to hear Miss Minchin say that her father was a distinguished Indian officer, and she would be an heiress to a great fortune. That her father had inherited a great deal of money Sarah had heard before, and also that some day it would be hers, and that he would not remain long in the army, but would come to live in London. And every time a letter came, she hoped it would say he was coming, and they were to live together again. But about the middle of the third year a letter came bringing very different news. Because he was not a businessman himself, her papa had given his affairs into the hands of a friend he trusted. The friend had deceived and robbed him. All the money was gone. No one knew exactly where, and the shock was so great to the poor, rash young officer that, being attacked by jungle fever shortly afterward, he had no strength to rally, and so died, leaving Sarah with no one to take care of her. Miss Minchin's cold and fishy eyes had never looked so cold and fishy as they did when Sarah went into the parlor on being sent for a few days after the letter was received. No one had said anything to the child about mourning, so, in her old-fashioned way, she had decided to find a black dress for herself, and had picked out a black velvet she had outgrown, and came into the room in it, looking the queerest little figure in the world, and a sad little figure, too. The dress was too short and too tight, her face was white, her eyes had dark rings around them, and her doll, wrapped in a piece of old black crepe, was held under her arm. She was not a pretty child. She was thin and had a weird, interesting little face, short black hair, and very large, green-gray eyes fringed all around with heavy black lashes. "'I am the ugliest child in the school,' she had said once, after staring at herself in the glass for some minutes. 
but there had been a clever, good-natured little French teacher who had said to the music master, "'That little crew, what a child, and so ugly beauty, these so large eyes, these so little spiritual face, wait till she grow up, you shall see.' This morning, however, in the tight, small black frock, she looked thinner and odder than ever, and her eyes were fixed on Miss Minchin with a queer steadiness as she slowly advanced into the parlor, clutching her doll. "'Put your doll down,' said Miss Minchin. "'No,' said the child. "'I won't put her down. I want her with me. She is all I have. She has stayed with me all the time since my papa died.' She had never been an obedient child. She had had her own way ever since she was born, and there was about her an air of silent determination under which Miss Minchin had always felt secretly uncomfortable. And that lady felt even now that perhaps it would be as well not to insist on her point. So she looked at her as severely as possible. "'You will have no time for dolls in future.' she said. You will have to work and improve yourself and make yourself useful. Sarah kept the big, odd eyes fixed on her teacher and said nothing. Everything will be different now, Miss Minchin went on. I sent for you to talk to you and make you understand. Your father is dead. You have no friends. You have no money. You have no home and no one to take care of you. The little pale olive face twitched nervously, but the green-gray eyes did not move from Miss Minchin's, and still Sarah said nothing. "'What are you staring at?' demanded Miss Minchin sharply. "'Are you so stupid that you don't understand what I mean? I tell you that you are quite alone in the world, and have no one to do anything for you unless I choose to keep you here.' The truth was, Miss Minchin was in her worst mood. To be suddenly deprived of a large sum of money yearly, and a show pupil, and to find herself with a little beggar on her hands, was more than she can bear with any degree of calmness. "'Now listen to me,' she went on, "'and remember what I say. If you work hard and prepare to make yourself useful in a few years, I shall let you stay here. You are only a child,' but you are a sharp child, and you pick up things almost without being taught. You speak French very well, and in a year or so you can begin to help with the younger pupils. By the time you are fifteen, you ought to be able to do that much at least. I can speak French better than you now, said Sarah. I always spoke it with my papa in India. Which was not at all polite, but was painfully true because Miss Minchin could not speak French at all, and indeed was not in the least a clever person. But she was a hard, grasping businesswoman, and after the first shock of disappointment, had seen that, at very little expense to herself, she might prepare this clever, determined child to be very useful to her, and save her the necessity of paying large salaries to teachers of languages. "'Don't be impudent, or you'll be punished.' she said. You will have to improve your manners if you expect to earn your bread. 
You are not a parlor boarder now. Remember that if you don't please me, and I send you away, you have no home but the street. You can go now. Sarah turned away. Stay, commanded Miss Minchin. Don't you intend to thank me? Sarah turned toward her. The nervous twitch was to be seen in her face, and she seemed to be trying to control it. What for? she said. For my kindness to you, replied Miss Minchin. For my kindness in giving you a home. Sarah went two or three steps nearer to her. Her thin little chest was heaving up and down, and she spoke in a strange, unchildish voice. "'You are not kind,' she said. "'You are not kind.' And she turned again and went out of the room, leaving Miss Minchin staring after her strange small figure in stony anger. The child walked up the staircase, holding tightly to her doll. She meant to go to her bedroom, but at the door she was met by Miss Amelia. "'You are not to go in there,' she said. "'That is not your room now.' "'Where is my room?' asked Sarah. "'You are to sleep in the attic next to the cook.' Sarah walked on. She mounted two flights more and reached the door of the attic room opened it, and went in, shutting it behind her. She stood against it and looked about her. The room was slanting-roofed and whitewashed. There was a rusty grate, an iron bedstead, and some odd articles of furniture sent up from better rooms below, where they had been used until they were considered to be worn out. Under the skylight in the roof, which showed nothing but an oblong piece of dull gray sky, there was a battered old red footstool. Sarah went to it and sat down. She was a queer child, as I have said before, and quite unlike other children. She seldom cried. She did not cry now. She laid her doll Emily across her knees and put her face down upon her, and her arms around her, and sat there, her little black head resting upon the black crepe, not saying one word, not making one sound. From that day her life changed entirely. Sometimes she used to feel as if it must be another life altogether, the life of some other child. She was a little drudge and outcast, she was given her lessons at odd times and expected to learn without being taught. She was sent on errands by Miss Minchin, Miss Amelia, and the cook. Nobody took any notice of her except when they ordered her about. She was often kept busy all day and then sent into the deserted schoolroom with a pile of books to learn her lessons or practice at night. She had never been intimate with the other pupils, and soon she became so shabby that, taking her queer clothes together with her queer little ways, they began to look upon her as being of another world than their own. The fact was that, as a rule, Miss Minchin's pupils were rather dull, matter-of-fact young people, 
accustomed to being rich and comfortable, and Sarah, with her elfish cleverness, her desolate life, and her odd habit of fixing her eyes upon them and staring them out of countenance, was too much for them. "'She always looks as if she was finding you out,' said one girl, who was sly and giving to making mischief. "'I am,' said Sarah promptly, when she heard of it. "'That's what I look at them for. I like to know about people.' I think them over afterward. She never made any mischief herself, or interfered with anyone. She talked very little, did as she was told, and thought a great deal. Nobody knew, and in fact nobody cared, whether she was unhappy or happy, unless perhaps it was Emily, who lived in the attic and slept in the iron bedstead at night. Sarah thought Emily understood her feelings, though she was only wax and had a habit of staring herself. Sarah used to talk to her at night. "'You are the only friend I have in the world,' she would say to her. "'Why don't you say something? Why don't you speak? Sometimes I am sure you could, if you would try. It ought to make you try, to know you are the only thing I have.' If I were you, I should try. Why don't you try? It really was a very strange feeling she had about Emily. It arose from her being so desolate. She did not like to own to herself that her only friend, her only companion, could feel and hear nothing. She wanted to believe, or to pretend to believe, that Emily understood and sympathized with her that she heard her, even though she did not speak, in answer. She used to put her in a chair sometimes and sit opposite to her on the old red footstool, and stare at her, and think and pretend about her, until her own eyes would grow large with something which was almost like fear, particularly at night, when the garret was so still, when the only sound that was to be heard was the occasional squeak and scurry of rats in the wainscot. There were rat-holes in the garret, and Sarah detested rats, and was always glad Emily was with her when she heard their hateful squeak and rush and scratching. One of her pretends was that Emily was a kind of good witch and could protect her. Poor little Sarah! Everything was pretend with her. She had a strong imagination. There was almost more imagination than there was Sarah and her whole forlorn, uncared-for child-life was made up of imaginings. She imagined and pretended things until she almost believed them, and she would scarcely have been surprised at any remarkable thing that could have happened. So she insisted to herself that Emily understood all about her troubles, and really was her friend. As to answering, she used to say, I don't answer very often. I never answer when I can help it. When people are insulting you, there is nothing so good for them as not to say a word, just to look at them and think. Miss Minchin turns pale with rage when I do it. Miss Amelia looks frightened. So do the girls. They know you are stronger than they are, because you are strong enough to hold in your rage, and they are not. 
and they say stupid things they wish they hadn't said afterward. There's nothing so strong as rage, except what makes you hold it in. That's stronger. It's a good thing not to answer your enemies. I scarcely ever do. Perhaps Emily is more like me than I am like myself. Perhaps she would rather not answer her friends, even. She keeps it all in her heart. But though she tried to satisfy herself with these arguments, Sarah did not find it easy. When, after a long, hard day, in which she had been sent here and there, sometimes on long errands, through wind and cold and rain, and when she came in wet and hungry, and had been sent out again, because nobody chose to remember that she was only a child, and that her thin little legs might be tired, and her small body, clad in its forlorn, too small finery, all too short and too tight, might be chilled. When she had been given only harsh words and cold, slighting looks for thanks, when the cook had been vulgar and insolent, when Miss Minchin had been in her worst moods, and when she had seen the girls sneering at her among themselves, and making fun of her poor, outgrown clothes. Then Sarah did not find Emily quite all that her sore, proud, desolate little heart needed, as the doll sat in her little old chair and stared. One of these nights, when she came up to the garret cold, hungry, tired, and with a tempest raging in her small breast, Emily's stare seemed so vacant, her sawdust legs and arms so limp and inexpressive, that Sarah lost all control over herself. "'I shall die presently,' she said at first. Emily stared. "'I can't bear this,' said the poor child, trembling. "'I know I shall die. I'm cold. I'm wet.' I'm starving to death. I've walked a thousand miles today, and they have done nothing but scold me from morning until night. And because I could not find that last thing they sent me for, they would not give me any supper. Some men laughed at me because my old shoes made me slip in the mud. I'm covered with mud now, and they laughed. Do you hear? She looked at the staring glass eyes and complacent wax face, and suddenly a sort of heartbroken rage seized her. She lifted her savage little hand and knocked Emily off the chair, bursting into a passion of sobbing. "'You are nothing but a doll!' she cried. "'Nothing but a doll! 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 You care for nothing. You are stuffed with sawdust. You never had a heart.' Nothing could make you feel. You are a doll. Emily lay upon the floor, with her legs ignominiously doubled up over her head, and a new flat place on the end of her nose. But she was still calm, even dignified. Sarah hid her face on her arms and sobbed. Some rats in the wall began to fight and bite each other, and squeak and scramble. But... As I have already intimated, Sarah was not in the habit of crying. After a while she stopped, and when she stopped she looked at Emily, 
who seemed to be gazing at her around the side of one ankle, and actually with a kind of glassy-eyed sympathy. Sarah bent and picked her up. Remorse overtook her. "'You can't help being a doll,' she said with a resigned sigh. "'Any more than those girls downstairs can help not having any sense. "'We are not all alike. "'Perhaps you do your sawdust best.'" End of Part 1